Dianne Feinstein lies in state, Donald Trump just lies, and Kevin McCarthy lies awake at night wondering why he failed. A lot of lies here. On the political junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And like to you, and think to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, because they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 403 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. Well, in a surprise to many, the only thing shut down this week is Kevin McCarthy's speakership. In a move many Republicans didn't think was possible, the effort by a small band of far-right House members led by Matt Gates to vacate the office of Speaker succeeded. For the first time in history, an effort to remove the Speaker of the House by a vote prevailed. The yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. It leaves, for now, the House of Representatives without a speaker and possibly in chaos. McCarthy's demise was brought about last weekend when the California Republican decided the only way to stop a shutdown of the federal government was to pass a bill with mostly Democratic votes. And, he said, after he was removed from office, he had few regrets. Doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it is necessary. I don't regret standing up for choosing governing over grievance. It is my responsibility It is my job. I do not regret negotiating. Our government is designed to find compromise. I don't regret my efforts to build coalitions and find solutions. I was raised to solve problems, not create them. So I may have lost a vote today, but as I walk out of this chamber, I feel fortunate to have served the American people. That's not how Gates saw it. The reason Kevin McCarthy went down today is because nobody trusts Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy has made multiple contradictory promises, and when they all came due, he lost lost votes of people who maybe don't even ideologically agree with me on everything. And this is how he responded when a reporter talked to him about numbers. But Congressman, hold on a second. You're saying that nobody trusts Kevin McCarthy. You're talking about, including yourself, about seven Republicans compared to about 200 and and about, you know... Right. some odd Republicans okay. who actually do trust him. So can you kind of explain yes. that? Yes. Well, a- that? as it turns out, getting 200 Republicans to trust you isn't enough to Wait. stay Speaker. McCarthy's entire 269-day speakership was fraught with peril from the beginning, having to go through a humiliating 15 rounds of voting before winning the job back in January, then having promised a hard-right group of House Republicans that he would agree to a rules change that allowed any single lawmaker to file the motion to vacate, which is what Gates did on Tuesday, two days after McCarthy ended the prospect of a government shutdown. Declaring the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives to be vacant, resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. Seven Republicans joined Gates and all 208 Democrats present to oust McCarthy. 
The Republicans were Andy Biggs of Arizona, Ken Buck of Colorado, Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Eli Crane of Arizona, Bob Good of Virginia, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, and Matt Rosendale of Montana. For his part, McCarthy, whose pre-vote suggestion to Gates was, bring it, said he would not run again in next week's vote for Speaker. This is the fast-moving story, and already two candidates have announced for the job. Steve Scalise of Louisiana, the current majority leader, and Ohio's Jim Jordan, who chairs the Ways and Means Committee. If the story weren't surreal enough, Donald Trump's name was floated as a potential speaker. He was asked about his possible interest in the job on Wednesday. We have some great, great people. Would you take the job? A lot of people have asked me about it. I'm focused. You know, we're leading. I don't know you. I'm sure you don't read too much in the papers. But we're leading by like 50 points for president. You know, my focus is totally on that. If I can help them during the process, I would do it. Some have wondered why Democrats didn't lift a finger to save McCarthy, especially when a successor could be even more objectionable for the minority party than what they had now. But McCarthy had spent the previous few days railing against the Democrats for everything that was going wrong. He had no interest in reaching out to the Dems to keep him in office, and on that he didn't waver. And when you add that to his decision three weeks ago, without a vote, to open an impeachment inquiry against President Biden— Why would any Democrat come to his rescue? Anyway, the vote for a new speaker comes next week, and we'll see if it becomes as eventful as it was back in January when McCarthy got the job in the first place. Dianne Feinstein, the California Democrat who had been in poor health in recent months, died last week at 90. She was the oldest member of the Senate and the longest-serving senator in California history. Her legacy as a trailblazer for women is legendary. Two years ago, well before her recent serious health issues, back when there were some questions about Feinstein's mental faculties and apparent missteps, some Democrats began suggesting that she should consider stepping down. Governor Gavin Newsom pledged that he would name a black woman in the event of a Senate vacancy. Perhaps he made that pledge to help him with his then-upcoming recall election. In any event, on Monday, in a surprise announcement, he named LaFonza Butler to the seat. She is the president of Emily's List, a former top advisor to Kamala Harris, and, as Newsom pledged, a black woman. She apparently was not on anyone's guest list, but the appointment was controversial for an assortment of reasons that we'll get to right now. Scott Schaefer is a senior editor for politics and government at KQED in San Francisco and the co-host of the station's Political Breakdown podcast. He covered Dianne Feinstein's career for many decades. Scott, it's been a while, but it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Thank you so much, Ken. It's good to be with you. Well, of course, I'll get to LaFonza Butler in a bit. I just don't want to give up talking about Dianne Feinstein just yet. The longest serving female senator in history. Do you remember when you first started covering her and when you first met her? 
Well, uh, I certainly remember when I moved to the city, she was mayor. That was 1981. And it was a, still a very turbulent time in the city. I mean, she, uh, you know, helped write the ship after the assassinations of George Moscone and Harvey Milk. Um, and I remember she faced a recall election in 1983 um, that was put on the ballot by some pro-gun kind of libertarian hippies, basically, living in the Haight-Ashbury. And uh, she beat that back handily. She got about 80% of the vote to retain her. And, uh, you know, that was really my first introduction to her politically, because I wasn't even a journalist then, you know. Um, and I went to work in 1987. She was termed out. She wasn't running for re-election. And I was working for Art Agnos, who was uh, running to, to be mayor uh, of San Francisco. She did not support him. She did not like him. Uh, he did not like her to be honest. Uh, they were very different, cut from very different cloth, and uh, disagreed on a lot of issues. And um, once he, he won that election, he became mayor. And they had, you know, sort of a back and forth squabble over whether or not she had left a budget deficit, spent down all the surplus and left him with no money left uh, in surplus. And she remembered that because I was quoted, I was his press secretary, and I'd be quoted in the paper, you know, on on the budget situation. And years later, many years later, I saw her at a reception for somebody who had just gotten elected to Congress, Ellen Tauscher. And this is like in the mid-90s. And she saw me and she said, you're the person who's been saying nasty things about me all these years. <laughs> so she, was, she had a very long memory for grudges. Um, but of course, she was a legend and uh, a trailblazer and a breaker of glass ceilings and many, many other things. You mentioned this early in what you were just saying, and I, I know everybody knows about this, but I still want to repeat it here. She had lost two races for mayor of San Francisco, including one to George Moscone, and a lot of people thought that, even her perhaps, that, that thought that her political career was at a standstill. And I want to play that, that horrific piece of tape on November 27, 1978, when Feinstein, then the president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, made this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. suspect is Supervisor Dan White. But as mayor, you know, you mentioned um, she made Scott Schaefer an enemy, but she had a lot of enemies, right? I mean, she was said to be too pro-business. She didn't appoint many women to top posts. She, she was widely liked. I mean, she was re-elected handily twice, but she, everybody wasn't in love with her, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to say, though, when she left office, she still had very high approval ratings. Um, but uh, no, she had, uh, as you said, she uh, pissed off the gay community. She vetoed a domestic partners legislation that would have um, allowed same-sex couples to get the same health benefits as their uh, straight counterparts. She vetoed a comparable worth piece of legislation that would have given women equal pay for equal work. 
She used to make all the women in her office wear dresses. They couldn't wear pants. <laughs> so, you know, yes, and she was very much aligned with downtown. And that was a time when the city was really facing some explosive growth downtown. And she was, you know, fairly conser- somewhat conservative by San Francisco standards. She supported home porting the USS Missouri and paying for it, uh, something that Art Agnos, who succeeded her, opposed. It never happened. Uh, the, the ship was never uh, sent here. But, uh, you know, she was very much a a controversial figure, but also in many circles beloved. And I think now, all these years later, very much appreciated. Whatever the feeling was in San Francisco, nationally, she had gotten a a claim and she was on Walter Mondale's shortlist for vice president in 1984. I'm going to play a little piece of tape. She spoke about that on NBC's Meet the Press. I want to apologize for the Meet the Press theme music that accompanies what she said. I'm still not seeking the, can, the, the position of vice president. I've had an opportunity now to be the, the first woman and the first mayor to be asked to go through an interview process. And I view that as a major opening of a door and something that's very important to do. Uh, I've had enough people come to me and say, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't to believe that it is important to do this. I also believe that in the interests of the party and in the interests of victory in November, it is very important that that door be open to a broad selection process and that people, uh, women, minorities, mayors, senators, uh, be considered in a careful way so that the strongest possible ticket can be put together. And then the next time we hear from her, really, you said after she let, was term-limited out as mayor, she ran for governor in 1990 against Pete Wilson, and it was a pretty close election. Yeah, she lost by about two and a half points. She was the first uh, woman, I believe, to run uh, as the nominee. We had nominees back then instead of the top two primary we have now. And, um, yeah, she beat John Vandekamp in the primary. He was an attorney, the attorney general for California. Um, she was considered a little more conservative than Vandekamp was. Uh, and so she was a good fit for the state statewide, but uh, she did lose that election. And, you know, she, she made a lot of connections, raised a lot of money, and um, was able to kind of parlay that into a Senate campaign race a couple of years later. Right. And I don't think the Republicans haven't elected a senator since. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, because it was uh, fine. Yeah, Feinstein and Boxer were there forever. Yes. What, what was she best known for in the Senate? Well, I mean, first of all, she came in right after the Clarence Thomas hearings, and I think everyone agreed, or most people, many people agreed, that that all-white male uh, committee really botched that hearing, including Joe Biden, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee. And so she, I believe, was the first woman to serve on the Judiciary Committee, and that was very much part of the year of the woman, 1992, when I think uh, there were then six women in the, in the Senate. Um, 1994, I think she, you know, she, um, against long odds, helped push through the assault weapons ban signed by President Clinton. Unfortunately, it had a 10-year sunset, so it's no longer the law. But I think she's very well known for that. I think also uh, 10 years later, 2014, she spearheaded the uh, release of a very long investigation of the CIA and a torture after Iraq, and she stood on the floor of the Senate and basically said, you know, this gives me no pleasure, but it's important that we are a nation of laws and uh, we have to hold the CAA accountable. She did that, you know, in spite of 
you know, request from the Obama administration not to do it, but she did. Uh, some people would say that was her finest hour. Let me go back to something you just said, because I, in another piece of tape, I really have grown to appreciate the more I listen to it. Uh, you talked about gun safety. And she had this debate with Larry Craig, I think, in 1993. I'm not sure of the year, but basically it was Larry Craig, the senator from Idaho, was an NRA member, and and here she is standing up for, for, for gun safety. I think it's a very dramatic moment. So the gentlelady from California needs to become a little more familiar with firearms and their deadly characteristics. And I say that because it is... Personal privilege for a moment, please. Yes, certainly. I am quite familiar with firearms. I became mayor as a product of assassination. I'm aware I of that. I found my assassinated colleague and put a finger through a bullet hole, bullet hole yeah. trying to get. I proposed gun control legislation in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I went through a recall on the basis of it. I was trained in the shooting of a firearm when I had terrorist ha attacks with a bomb at my house when my husband was dying, when I had windows shot out. Mm -hmm. Senator, I know something about what firearms can do. Senator, I am not accusing you of not knowing. What I'm accusing you of is not broadening the issue to understand the debate. There was also kind of a, a back and forth with her ideology. I mean, I mean, she also once supported the death penalty. She once opposed same-sex marriage. She voted for the war in Iraq. Um, I think what I'm trying to say is it's probably not easy trying to pigeonhole her in terms of ideology. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, she was always to the right of the Democratic Party, at least the activists in uh, California. Um, she rarely got their endorsement. I mean, I remember when she ran for re-election in 2018, uh, they did not endorse her. I believe they endorsed uh, her Democratic opponent, uh, Kevin DeLeon. They did. Who lost. That had to be an embarrassment. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, she, but, you know, she was she never went there to speak. But I think the, she did speak in 1990 when she was running for governor and she stood up and said, I support the death penalty. She got booed and she took that video and turned it into a commercial for her run for governor to say, look how I'm willing to stand up to the liberals in my party. And so uh, she was she was never uh, close to, you know, the, the, the left or more left wing part of the party. You know, that said, she was very close uh to Boxer and Gavin Newsom and uh, Willie Brown. They were very good friends for many, many years, um, and, and Nancy Pelosi as well. Maybe the beginning of the end for Feinstein, uh, at least among progressives, was the way she handled herself during the 2020 confirmation hearings uh, of uh, Supreme Court nominee Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. You want to remind us about that? Well, I would say even before that, there was the, uh, the Kavanaugh hearing. Uh, and uh, she had gotten word from Christine Blasey Ford, I believe her name was, uh, that, uh, that uh, Kavanaugh had sexually um, uh, assaulted her in college when they were, you know, in college together many years earlier. And Feinstein sat on that information um, until very late in that hearing process, that confirmation process. And so I think that really uh, annoyed a lot of Democrats who felt like she should have come forward with that sooner. Uh, and then Amy Coney Barrett, yeah, she, you know, at that time there had been, you know, some whispers about her decline or cognitive ability. And, uh, you know, she wasn't very sharp in the hearing. Uh, they had, I think, by that time removed her as the ranking Democrat um, because there was just not faith in her ability to, uh, you know, hold her own. 
And at the end of the hearing, you know, which, you know, the, the committee had vo- voted to support uh, Barrett's uh, nomination, she hugs uh, Lindsey Graham and says something like, oh, I think that was the, you know, the best hearing we've had yet, which was uh, like crazy. And, uh, you know, I think it just showed how completely out of touch she was with, um, you know, many, many, many people in her party. Yeah, I think that was the beginning of the end, at least uh, among those people who said it might be time for her to go. And then, of course, came her illness, you know, her long disappearance from the Senate and her seeming confusion when she returned. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, all part of the decline. I mean, she ran for re-election when she was 85 in 2018. A lot of people wanted her to step aside for a new generation, and uh, she refused to do that. And, you know, not unlike... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She, you know, she stuck stuck around after maybe she should have. And I like, at least in this case, you know, the governor's a Democrat, so it's not like the Democrats are going to lose a seat in the Senate. But I think, you know, for sure, um, you know, that decline was not something I think she anticipated. I'm sure it was on some level humiliating. You know, she was a very proud woman and uh, accomplished so much. And, uh, you know, she was you know, reduced to being told how to vote, you know, because she was confused many times and being pushed around in a wheelchair in the Senate. I mean, that was, you know, I'm sure very, very difficult for her. But I mean, that may be the last memory we have of her. But just to sum up, her her 30 years in the Senate were legendary. I mean, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is a towering figure in uh, California politics, for sure. Um, but also uh, in the Senate. I mean, she, she, as I said, she broke glass ceilings. Uh, she helped pave the way for many other women to run for the Senate and for many other offices as well. And like you know, just in the in the in the days since she died, you know, I, there's much more talk about her contributions and her courage uh, than there is about her sticking around too long. I think you know, people there is a, you know, where, there's a moment right now where people are appreciating everything she did, starting with writing the city uh, and getting the city through the, the assassinations and the Jonestown massacre, which happened two weeks earlier. So that's really what people are focused on right now. So Governor Newsom has kept his promise uh, by naming a black woman to fill the Senate seat. Tell me about LaFonza Butler. I didn't see her name on anyone's list of possible replacements. Yeah, she was uh, kind of out of the box. Um, so Newsom got himself in a pickle. Uh, you know, I think you alluded to this at the top. In 20, well, when he appointed Alex Padilla to be the new senator when Kamala Harris left to become vice president, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure to appoint a black woman at that time because uh, Kamala Harris was the only black woman in the Senate. Uh, He chose to appoint Padilla, first Latino senator uh, from California. And then shortly thereafter, um, he promised uh, that he would appoint a black woman if there was another opening prematurely. Well, you know, as Feinstein declined. That became like a more like a possibility. The Senate race to replace her is underway. Uh, one of the people running is Barbara Lee, the black uh, congresswoman from Oakland. And a f- couple, few weeks ago, Newsom said, well, if I appoint somebody to that seat, it's going to be only an, on an interim basis. They would not run for the seat for six years, for a full six-year term. And many people, especially black women, found that to be condescending and insulting. They were not happy. There was a full court press on him uh, this past weekend to name uh, Barbara Lee. There was pressure on black women who he offered it to to say no. And I'm told a number of them did. 
Uh, and so he landed on LaFonza Butler, who, you know, is a, is a great choice in many, many ways. Uh, she has a very different background from most of the vast majority of people in the Senate. She comes from very humble um, roots. Her family uh, was from Magnolia, Mississippi. Her dad died when she was 16. Her mom was the caregiver. She went to Jackson State University, uh, got involved in labor politics as an organizer of janitors and nurses, came out to California. Um, and got involved here with SEIU, became the head of SEIU, the largest union in California, and uh, along the way worked briefly for uh, Uber and uh, Airbnb, um, and then became a partner in a political consulting firm uh, whose clients included Kamala Harris, and so she helped uh, steer Kamala Harris's presidential campaign in 2020. Now, one of the reasons, I mean, the main reason Newsom said no about Barbara Lee is that he didn't want to give one of the three people who are already running, the others being Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, uh, they would give them an un- uh, they would give her an unfair advantage going to next year's primary. So, well, let me let me just let me just let me just push back on that because you know there's a reason there are no black women. Well, there's now there's one from California uh, with uh, Senator Butler, but there's a reason there have been only three in the entire history of the Senate. You know, black women have had a hard time breaking through with fundraising and the kind of connections that, um, you know, white candidates, especially men, uh, have from their college years and their business connections and so on and so forth. So to say that it would have given her an unfair advantage, I think, is unfair because if it might have helped improve her chances of winning, you know, having the title uh, incumbent senator, sure. Uh, but, you know, I think the deck is so stacked against her now in a number of ways that, um, you know, it's not like it would be crowning her uh, as the senator and everyone else like Adam Schiff and Katie Porter are going to go away. That that wouldn't have happened. I appreciate you sending saying that. That's exactly right. Uh, here I am talking about unfair advantages when we know about the uh, the uh, the disadvantages that black female candidates have. So thank you for that. But the other thing that Newsom said that he was going to name an interim senator, presumably somebody who wouldn't seek the seat next year. Do we know if he's planning on running? We do not know. Um, he Because he's faced such a backlash in that notion that you can have somebody kind of keep the seat warm until, you know, uh, somebody white gets elected, you know, it was really insulting. And so what he did when he appointed Butler, as he, he said publicly, she's free to do what she wants. She can run if she wants to, which, of course, she can. I mean, anybody could. They don't have to. I mean, they might say they're not going to run and then turn around and run. What happened here in San Francisco with uh, the mayor, Ed Lee. Um, but at this point, she has not said what she's going to do. Uh, it's complicated because Nancy Pelosi is strongly supporting Adam Schiff. And so if LaFonza Butler does decide to seek a six-year term, it's going to be very interesting because she's not really well-known um, at all. She doesn't. She's never run for office before. And it's not easy in a state with, uh, you know, 20-plus million voters to raise the money, put together the infrastructure, and get elected statewide. Do we know what it does to next year's Senate race yet, or is it just too soon to tell? Well, it's a little too soon to tell. I mean, the big question is, will she run or not? I mean, if she doesn't run, uh, it'll have less of an impact. But nonetheless, I I don't see how it helps Barbara Lee um, to have a black woman as the U.S. senator when you're out there saying we need to have a black senator, a black female senator. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, Lee would have to win in order for that to happen. But nonetheless, I do think it diminishes that message. Um, And so we'll just have to wait and see. 
you know, they have until early December to decide, you know, to put their name, file their papers and get on the ballot. And Barbara Lee was all, all, already trailing uh, Schiff and Porter in that race, right? Yeah, there's been polls. It's still early. I mean, you know, a big, big percentage of the electorate, maybe, I don't know, 40 percent has made up their minds. Um, But most polls have showed Schiff and Porter clearly at the top, Schiff maybe a little bit ahead and with maybe between 20 and 17 percent support and uh, Barbara Lee down at around 7 percent. So, yeah, uh, and and it's been that way for, you know, several months now. Scott Schaefer is a senior editor for politics and government at KQED in San Francisco and the co-host of the station's Political Breakdown podcast. Scott, it was great having you on the program. Thanks for this stuff. Yeah, great to talk to you, Ken. Stay well. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at thepoliticaljunkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Yeah,